Good morning. Let's uh, grab a seat, and uh, Jeremy is handing out um, the handout today. Uh, we'll, we'll do our best to uh, see how much we can get through, but um, it's, a, it's a privilege to be taking uh, Josh's position while he's on vacation this morning. I do uh, consider it a privilege to uh, teach Sunday school. Um, and uh, let me open us with a word of prayer this morning. Father in heaven, you who are the giver of your word, we pray now that by your spirit, you would be the instructor of your word, that you would teach us, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would enlighten our hearts. We ask this in Jesus, our Savior's name who is our advocate at your right hand, even now, interceding for us. Amen. Okay, good morning. I'm going to show my age here by uh, putting these glasses on. My, uh, my eyes are not getting any better over the years, so I'm not attempting to look like a professor with glasses. I'm uh, attempting to see what's on my notes. Um, we're covering this morning 1 John 3, 19 through 4, 6, or at least as much of it as we can get through. Um, but before we do that, I'd really like to just kind of step back and quickly, and I do mean uh, quickly, we don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I want to quickly look at the forest instead of the trees. Um, for those of you that are hikers, you know what it's like to hike through the trees and you know you're almost closed in and you can see the flowers and the pathway in front of you and the rocks maybe on the side if you're in a canyon you can see the stream cascading down um, and all these details that you pay attention to and that's it's beautiful it's uh, serene but there's nothing like stepping up on a rock outcropping or getting above the tree line and looking back, even at the, the path that you've taken, those of you that hike to, to peaks, to high mountains, can even look back and see your whole, the whole course of your, uh, of your journey. Um, there's, nothing, there's nothing like seeing the forest instead of the trees, seeing a, the broad contours of the valley below or the broad contours of the forest. Um, that's, that's somewhat what I want to do very quickly this morning with 1 John. We've been delving into the details of 1 John, and we're up to the end of chapter 3 and beginning in chapter 4. But what is John's purpose in his epistle? I think the best place to look at John's purpose is very similar to his gospel. Not at the very end, but close to the end of his epistle, he gives the purpose for his epistle. 1 John 5, verse 13. Um, and 5, of course, is the last chapter of 1 John. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And those of you that are familiar with John's gospel immediately recognize that purpose to be very, very similar to his purpose in writing his gospel. Remember in John 20, 31, 
Um, not again the end of the, not in the last chapter, the, the chapter before the last. Um, John writes, I could have told you many more things about what Christ has done. There are many other things he did that I could enumerate in here, but I haven't written them. In fact, he writes at the very end, the last verses of his gospel, if we were to write all the things that Christ did and taught, even, even the whole world wouldn't contain the books that could be written, right? But in, in John 20, 31, he says, I wrote what I wrote. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Notice the, the great similarity between the purpose of the Gospel of John and the purpose of 1 John. There is one particular difference, if you noticed it. John, the Gospel, the Evangelion, if you will, the good news, is written to whom? To believers and unbelievers alike, right? That you may believe, whereas 1 John he writes these things to you who believe. First John, as Josh has been stating uh, uh, numerous times, especially as he refers to love for the brothers, who are the brothers, um, certainly that can apply more generally to our neighbor, um, but it's probably more particularly applicable to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that truly is John's purpose in this epistle. He writes to the church. He writes to the people of God, what? Those who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes to assure his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that actually is one of the great themes, if not the greatest theme of 1 John, assurance. John would assure his readers, that they have eternal life through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his real purpose. But how does he do that? As you go through 1 John, how does he assure us that we have eternal life, um, that we have hope? Uh, one of the greatest ways to see this, I think, is to look at what he does all through the book, and we've seen it quite a bit already. But John's method of assuring his readers is by putting before them a series of contrasts. John contrasts those who walk in light with those who walk in darkness, those who confess their sins with those who say they have no sin, those who keep Christ's commandments with those who do not keep his commandments, those who love their brother with those who hate their brother, even as Cain. Those who do not love the world with those who love the world. Those who persevere, who continue with us, with those who have gone out from us. Those who confess the Son and the Father with those who deny the Father and the Son and deny that Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. Those who practice righteousness with those who do not practice righteousness, who practice sin. Those who are from God, or better translated probably, of God, 
with those who are of the world. We'll look at that one in more detail today. There should be handouts on the back if you're coming in um, later uh, on one of the chairs in the back. He contrasts um, in the coming chapters that we haven't gone through yet, he will contrast those who love one another with those who do not, those who believe God with those who do not, and those who have the Son and thus have life with those who do not have the Son and therefore do not have life. But, but what does is, what is this contrast do for us? What does it do for us? Well, for those of us that truly are children of God, that are believers in God, it sets forth for us the tenor of what the Christian life looks like. We can look at the first column here and say, yes, this is the tenor of my life. Not that we never fail. After all, we are those who confess our sins, not say we have no sin. But this is the tenor. This is our love. This is our hope. This is what our life is marked by. These are the fruits of the life that we have in Christ produced by the Spirit of God as He gives us life, as He gave us life in the past and continues to fill us with life. Um, so again, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the, the overall purpose of 1 John, but I did want to put it before you. Um, as you look at this book, recognize at least one way that John is trying to assure you that you are in Christ, and in Christ you have eternal life. Any quick thoughts or comments on that or on, on the, the overall breadth of 1 John before we jump into 1 John chapter 3, verse 19? Any thoughts or comments? Yes. <laughs> very assuring. Um, and so I think that like it can it can be easy to uh, I don't know. Sometimes I read the book of First John and I'm like, is this really can this really assure somebody because it does sometimes read like this is to be perfect, although I don't think that's actually what it's saying. Um, but I think it really does work as a kind of assurance, um, maybe especially when it's kind of spoken to you as someone very good. Excellent. Thank you, James. That's a beautiful testimony, and especially from one who's grown up in a Christian home. I had a similar um, background as James did, um, always knowing God as my Father, Christ as my Savior, um, and it's a beautiful testimony. But those of us that have grown up in the church even, 
need that assurance that many times our parents have uh, helped us with. My, my mother actually helped me with, first, with John 20, 31. That's one of the, the, uh, the passages she pointed me to when I had doubts as a young child. Um, and truly, uh, John is concerned with both unbelievers believing and in believers knowing that they have hope. Okay, let's jump into 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, and we're going to start with verse 19 through 24. Um, let me read the whole passage there, and, uh, and then we'll talk about um, the various verses. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Notice right off the bat we have this, this grand theme even in this, this passage here. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Beautiful passage. Let me just say from the outright, um, and if you'll go to your last, the back page, um, I'm going to be using, as Josh has been using, two commentaries. I think he uses another one. Um, but I'm going to be using John Calvin's commentary on uh, 1 John, and I'm also using Robert Yarborough's uh, commentary um, on, uh, on 1 John. Uh, Robert Yarborough is, is a uh, New Testament professor at Covenant Seminary, and of course we know John Calvin if we've been in the Reformed Church for any period of time. But I'm going to be using those and many of the, the quotes that you'll see below um, the text of Scripture is from these, uh, these commentaries. And I would, I would strongly encourage both of those commentaries to you. Obviously, Calvin's is one of my favorite commentaries um, for, for many parts of Scripture. He didn't write on every book, or at least we don't have his writing on every book. But um, certainly the ones that he did, and it's most of them, um, are, are wonderful. And, and Robert Yarbrough, I would say, um, I wasn't familiar with him, but just a wonderful in-depth study. Um, if you want to, to read um, in-depth to where you can go as, as deep as you want and with as many cross-references and historical references and things like that, um, and yet in a very readable style, very understandable style, I would really commend to you Yarbrough's work. Um, I will also, in the text of Scripture, I have included a few um, alternate translations in brackets. Um, those are from Yarbrough, who has, um, in his commentary, he actually does his, his own translation. And I think he, uh, his translation is helpful in a few areas, and I'll, I'll point those out. The first thing we want to look at, though, in verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. By what? What is he referring to this here? Well, obviously, as those who study the scripture, the first place we would go is the immediate context. What it precedes, 1 John 3, 19. 
1 John 3, 16 says this, 16 through 18 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that is, Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children or beloved children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And we discussed this last week. Um, but this is the this that's being referred to in verse 19. Loving indeed, not in just word and talk. By our love, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Um, and, and here's what Calvin says. If we truly love our neighbors, it is a testimony to us that we are born of God, who is the truth, or that the truth of God dwells in us. In these words, he tells us that faith does not exist apart from a good conscience. Okay, this, in, this increases our faith. This, this gives us assurance as we're obedient to God's commands and love our brother. But notice this. Not that assurance comes from it or depends on it, but because we are truly and not falsely assured of our union with God only when He manifests Himself in our love by the efficacy of His Holy Spirit. Again, remember who is doing the work. It's not us. We're not gaining our, our salvation or even um, accomplishing as the most important thing, our insurance, assurance on our own. It is God's Spirit who works that, even that assurance in us um, and for us. And He's even the one that works on us, in us to be able to love our brother. Um, he goes on, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. There's an alternate translation of this I think is helpful, and I put it down below in the, it, with the asterisk. That f those first um, two verses could be rendered this way, and this is how Yarborough would, would uh, translate it. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and we will set our hearts at ease before him whenever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. I think that may, in the English, makes it a little bit more understandable. Um, and Yarborough says, John's point isn't to make an academic assertion. He's not trying to, to deal with platitudes here. Okay, When he says, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything, this isn't just a platitude that we take and run with. No, it is to remind readers that in coming before God, they approach one who knows everything about all hearts, yet is still able to forgive. He, that is God the Father, knows human folly and guilt, disgrace and shame, even thoughts and words before they are spoken. Yet at the right hand of this God is Christ the Advocate. Remember what John said in the second chapter. Through his, that is Christ's intercession, God's knowledge of human misery can result in exoneration that the heart longs for rather than condemnation that the soul conjures up and fears. 
I think that's beautifully put. Um, when we talk about God is greater than our heart and he knows everything, God knows our every sin. God knows our every struggle. And yet our advocate is at his right hand interceding for us. And therefore, verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. It reminds us of Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Notice we're commanded to come before the Father in confidence. Um, yes, did you have a question, Jeremy? Or comment? Go ahead. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, that's a beautiful testimony of one that comes. Yeah. Very good. That's a, another beautiful testimony on the other side from one that has come from an unbelieving uh, background. Um, thank you, Jeremy. And, and I like your point, too, of seeing another contrast um, between those who, whose hearts condemn us and those who, who, uh, whose don't. There are many contrasts, actually, that I didn't put in that, that table at the, on the first page um, that we could actually uh, find as well. But um, very good point. Let's, uh, let's go back to verse 21 now and read verse 21 and 22 together. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Ah, here's the verse we all like, right? The name it and claim it verse, right? Um. But it's very interesting as we look into it in more detail, we see what John really means. And uh, we'll not only look at what John means, 
but we'll look at what he's reiterating that our Lord Jesus Christ put before his disciples, one of whom was John. Yarborough says, notice that the relational, confident access to the throne of grace presupposes the ethical doing what God commands. That's what a lot of us often forget. The prayer that John envisions would not be self-indulgent or whimsical. It's not like we treat God as a genie in the sky that we just get whatever we want from, right? That's not only um, nonsensical, um, that's, uh, that's, that's horrendous to think that way, right? Not, wouldn't be self-indulgent or whimsical. The prayer that John envisions would grow out of close attention to what pleases God and furthers His, that is, God's intentions. You'll recognize that John is reiterating the words of our Lord. And, and when I mention this, note in 1 John how much John refers almost verbatim to what Christ has proclaimed as John himself recorded it in the Gospel of John, and in particular in his upper room discourse, in the discourse he had with the twelve just before his passion, just before his crucifixion. It's amazing how many times we can see John reiterating the teaching of his Lord. You can see how much, much of an impact it had, especially that upper room discourse. Notice John 14, the beautiful passage on let not your hearts be troubled. Christ says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then a little bit later in that same discourse, John 15, uh, where he talks about the vine and the branches. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, very improperly applied many times by believers. But what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Do we really take this like some little children do sometimes, that it's just, if I pin on to my prayer in Jesus' name at the end, I'm going to get whatever I ask for. Is that the way we pray? What does it really mean to pray in, in, in Jesus' name or in Christ's name? It's to identify with the purpose of Christ to the extent that our will has become identified with or conformed to the will of God. That's what we mean when we pray in Christ's name. We conform our will to Christ, to God's will. And this is, this is confirmed later in the book of 1 John. Notice later in the book, 1 John 5 verses 14 and 15 and I'm not going going to go into detail here because I don't want to steal the thunder of Josh when he will probably much more um, capably go through that passage but notice what it says in 1 John 5 14 and 15 and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests 
that we have asked of him. So what is the key here that John, that John uh, elaborates on or that John um, uh, further qualifies what he said previously in 1 John 3? This is the confidence we have toward him if we ask anything according to his will. And again, as I was saying about praying in Jesus' name, we conform our wills to his will. And as we do so, we will find that those things that we ask, we're asking those things that he desires. We desire the things that he desires, in fact. Um, but many times we try to do it without the obedience, without the ethical part, as Yarbrough says. Um, and we wonder why we're always thinking that God's not hearing our prayer. Um, let's quickly move to verse 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Notice again, from the Gospel of John, what he's reiterating here in 1 John chapter 3. He's actually restating, as Yarborough says, Jesus' personal counsel to John and the others, the other of the twelve, on the eve of his passion. And it's, it's an adapted restatement of the object lesson that Jesus' life embodied. This was Christ's life who gave himself for us. But notice in John chapter 13, when he washed the disciples' feet. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And here John reiterates that in 1 John. John 15, again his upper room discourse. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, later on, these things I command you, so that you will love one another. Now, this last verse, verse 24, uh, may be a little bit difficult to, uh, to put together or to understand how it fits together. Whoever keeps his commandments, and actually in the Greek, if I were to read this um, uh, uh, literally, it would be whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. Um, Yarbrough says probably the best way to, to translate this is whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and Christ in him. He's referring to Christ here who gave this commandment that we just read uh, back in John, the Gospel of John. But one of the best ways to understand this is to look at what and by this refers to. What would you think and by this is a reference to? Many of us would just jump ahead to by the Spirit and, and see this as just a reiteration. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit. Um, by this is by the Spirit. And while that's certainly not completely incorrect, it doesn't really fit the, uh, the wording as well as by this actually... Um, modifies keeping his commandments. By keeping his commandments, we know by the Spirit that he abides in us. 
You see that? And so Yarborough would, uh, would write it this way. Believers know by the Spirit of God, that's how we know it, um, that God or Christ gives them, the Spirit that God or Christ gives them, that they abide in Christ and Christ in them as they keep the commandments and trust. Uh, commandments to trust and love. So in other words, it's as we keep his commandments that the Spirit causes us to be assured of, causes us to know that we abide um, in him. And uh, this love that John, um, uh, that put, that John puts forth, even as Christ puts forth, uh, Yarborough says, is not an indiscriminate affection, but a discerning devotion. And we're going to see why it needs to be discerning in the next section, in verses 1 through 6 of 1 John. But before we jump to that, any questions or comments on this first half, uh, John 3, 19 through 24, anything that you've seen in here that was uh, striking to you, any, any questions you had? No questions? Everything's completely understandable? Wonderful. Certainly not me. Um, okay, let's, let's look at John, uh, 1 John 4, chapters 1 through 6. And again, I'm going to read that uh, uh, completely, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. Um, and let me, let me just say to start, I'm going to read it with the alternate word of instead of from because I think that's actually a better translation, and it's actually more consistent with the way that those particular, it's two, it's two words in the Greek, um, are actually translated most places. Um, and I'm, we're, I'm not really sure why they translated it from in the ESV, um, but Yarborough says of is really gives a better sense here, and I really think it does. So I'm going I'm to just replace that, otherwise this is the ESV. Beloved, do not believe, and Yarborough would say, by believe here, he's not talking about believing like we believe in God. It's, it's giving credence to. Um, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. And notice I said it's a discriminating, um, love is discriminating or discerning. We see that now we have to discern. We have to discriminate um, Test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. A very simple test, is it not? But we'll see that, that test, that confession is packed absolutely packed. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, that is, who does not confess Jesus, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And we've already heard John's um, talk of Antichrist and Antichrists being already in the world earlier in this epistle. Little children or beloved children, you are of God and have overcome them. Notice that have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
They are of the world. Therefore, they speak of the world, and the world listens to them. We are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Um, a fascinating text. Um, let's first notice that word of, of and uh, particularly of God. Yarbrough says the phrase of God describes the identity of those who confess Jesus aright. They are of God. But notice what this means. True Christological, that just means uh, uh, pertaining to Christ, Christological confession and love are likewise of God. This same quality is, however, lacking where sin is dominant, and particularly where aberrant Christological confession prevails. Um, those who are, do not confess Christ are not of God, John says, even as our Lord taught when he walked the earth. Um, verse 1, let me read verse one, just verse 1 again. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many times when we read this, we look at the word spirit and we, you know, we kind of, uh-oh. We're now kind of getting into the mystical realm and um, what do I do with this? And do I need to be looking around for for spirits and, and demons. And, um, and one of the reasons we, we look at a passage like that is because in this day and age, the spiritual realm is really considered either non-existent or at least, at the very least, you can't know anything about it. And so if it's not physical, if it's not something I can measure with all of my senses or with any measurement, um, tool that we have uh, we've developed in this day and age, it's not real. Whereas, of course, John comes at it from a biblical perspective where men and women, humans, are made of body and spirit. So when we talk about spirits here, we're not necessarily talking about demons or Satan um, or even the Holy Spirit, though all of our spirits are influenced by um, the Spirit of God and certainly um, uh, some more than others by the demons and Satan himself. But don't, let, don't get hung up on that. When we talk about spirit, what John is talking about here, he explains at the end of this verse, for many false prophets. In other words, prophets have come claiming to be true prophets, but they're false. These are individuals, right? They're individuals, and when he talks about don't believe every spirit, he's saying don't believe every person who claims this particular doctrine or that particular doctrine if it's not in conformity with the Word of God. He's talking about the spirits of, of true prophets or false prophets. Yes, Jane. Very good. Excellent. Yeah. What comes out of the mouth and whether or not it's the word of Christ. 
Great, great point. Great, excellent. And of course, the, the word in Greek for spirit is pneuma, um, which uh, we get many of our words from. Um, but uh, excellent point. Yes, what comes out of their mouth? What are they teaching? Um, John's readers are to be alert, Yarborough says, as to whether doctrines and behavior, as James just said, what comes out of their mouth and what their lives look like, cropping up in their midst, truly reflect the character of the God they worshiped as revealed in Jesus Christ. Many false prophets have gone out into the world, begs comparison with John's earlier claim that now many antichrists have appeared. It also echoes Jesus' predictions of false prophets. Remember, he said many false prophets are going to rise up and claim to be me even. And it resonates with still broader first century concerns. If you're aware of the history of the first century, you know that Greco-Roman religion of the time trafficked heavily in secret or privileged knowledge of sacred mysteries. What do we call that, typically? Gnosticism, right? It was a, it was a great heresy at the beginning. Um, so this is, this is the context in which John is living and writing to his, um, to his readers. Um, I, I love, uh, I, I love the, uh, the, in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God, the test that John uses. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Sounds like such a simple test, doesn't it? I love Calvin's treatment of this. Notice what he says. Let us remember what this confession contains. Just the words, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. When the apostle says that Christ came, we infer that he was before with the Father. By this, his eternal divinity is shown. By saying that he came in the flesh, he means that by putting on flesh, he became a real man of the same nature with us, that he became our brother, except, of course, that he was free from all sin and corruption. And finally, by saying that he came, we must note the cause of his coming. For the Father did not send him for nothing. Right? What is the covenant of grace all about? That God the Father and the Son made a covenant that the Son would come for the salvation of the people. His elect, God's elect that he had given to the Son. Right? What was his purpose in coming? Was his purpose in coming was salvation. So notice how, how uh, John Calvin takes this one little phrase, a phrase that we, we uh, say every week in our confessions, um, and fleshes it out, <laughs> to, to, to use the word again, fleshes it out so that we understand the full implications of confessing that Jesus, is the, uh, Jesus has come in the flesh, or the opposite, not confessing. And anybody that knows history knows the history of the church is full of those that would not make this confession or would be opposed to this confession. In fact, it's not just the early church of the first century. Those that know the 20th century know that this is exactly what, was, uh, what the uh, church combated in the early part of the 20th century when the, the Presbyterian church divided and uh, Westminster Seminary broke away from Princeton Seminary when the mainline Presbyterian church was left and the Orthodox Presbyterian church was started. 
And, and the PCA, um, of course, has roots in the Orthodox uh, Presbyterian Church. Um, that, was, that, was the big, uh, that was the big deal. They were, they were not confessing Christ's humanity as well as his deity, uh, along with a number of other things. Yes, Jeremy. Yes. Yes. Ah, oh, that's great. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, love it. Love it. Excellent, Jeremy. Um, notice another heresy that John was probably combating in the first century. Um, Yarborough says this is often, this uh, statement in, ver in verses 2 and 3 is often and plausibly taken as a rebuttal of docetism. And uh, what is docetism? Docetism is a word that comes from, I think, a Greek word meaning to seem or to appear. What, what is docetism? Docetism is that, that Jesus wasn't really human. He wasn't really crucified. It just appeared that way. You know? And it's a real, really a denial of his humanity. Um, not necessarily a, necessarily a denial of his deity, but a denial of his, his humanity. Um, but this is a rebuttal of docetism that arose in the early church and competed with the view that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. A spirit from God will not distort this two-sided truth. Jesus' full humanity as well as his full divinity. A primary gauge of a spirit's authenticity is then Notice, doctrinal. And there again, we see the importance of watching your doctrine, as Paul even said to his protege, Timothy. Notice, John refers to this in 2 John chapter 7. For many deceivers have gone out of, into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver, and the Antichrist. So we see how important a principle this is for the Apostle John in the first century. Now let's look at verse 4. Little children, you are of God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But notice the tense of that verb, overcome. You have overcome. It's the perfect tense, right? It's done. And this actually will remind us of Christ's words where he uses the exact Greek word and the exact Greek tense um, when he taught again, interestingly, in John chapter 15. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I will overcome the world, right? No, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Even before his passion, Christ states, I have overcome the world, and we likewise have overcome the world in Christ. Even now, and certainly our ultimate overcoming is absolutely guaranteed. Notice where John's confidence is grounded, however. Yet John's confidence, Yarborough says, while it extends to his readers, is not grounded in them. They will prevail only because the one who is among you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one in the world is Antichrist, and the beings are forces he commands. The one whom believers share is Christ. He is, in the traditional Johannine parlance, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And what were the seven stars in Revelation? The messengers or the angels to the churches. And walks among the seven golden lampstands. What were the golden lampstands in John's vision? The churches. Um, his powerful presence in his church guarantees his followers' arrival at the destination to which he beckons them. And that really is our hope, is it not? That really is our hope. It is guaranteed to us because our Lord is with us, even in his spirit. And then five and six, quickly. They are of the world. They speak of the world, and the world listens to them. We are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And again, I'm going to say it again. Look at the repetition that John uses of his Savior's words, even in his um, upper room discourse. First, let's look at John 8, which is prior to this, but Jesus' words, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world, he says to those who were against him. And then to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, same wording, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Later on in John 17, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. This is Christ's prayer to his father, by the way. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Um. Jesus' reasoning here, Yarborough says, is a direct reflection of an axiom laid down by Jesus. And here we're referring to where he says, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not of God does not listen to us. Notice the axiom Christ laid down when he walked the earth in John chapter 8. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And then he speaks right to his, 
his accusers and, and those who did not believe in his day. The reason why you do not hear them, that is the words of God, is that you are not of God. Notice what's required first to hear what God says. You have to be of God. And this is the great reform doctrine that without the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit, without the life-giving um, breath of the Spirit uh, in, our, in our hearts, we would not believe. We would not hear, uh, as John says here, and expect this as you take the gospel to a lost and dying world. There will be many who don't hear you and won't hear you. But if they do know this, it's not because of your eloquence. It's because they are of God. God has worked in them by his spirit. Well, let's close there. You can read that last uh, quote. Um, but I think we're to the point where we're going we're to have to close. Any final brief comments or, or questions before we close? Yes. Yes, it's greater than he's excellent. Excellent, excellent. You have the closing comment. Let's, let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your word. Uh, we thank you for your truth and that you can assure us that we have eternal life, even in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And you do this by the Spirit whom you have given us. We give thanks and ask that you would bless us as we now come together as your church to worship you. Amen.